Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Each month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Scott Strauss back to the show. Scott is Professor of Political Science and International Studies at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and is the author and editor of several books about mass violence and human rights. Today, we'll be talking about the most recent of these, his book, Making and Unmaking Nations, War, Leadership, and Genocide in Modern Africa, published just a couple months ago by Cornell University Press. The book is a thoughtful attempt to wrestle with the big questions of genocide studies. What is genocide? Why does it happen? What prevents it from happening? And what can we do about it? It's a thoughtful analysis informed by a deep understanding of the field and of violence in Africa. It's, I have to say, one of those books that's on, going to be on the reading list of every introductory graduate seminar in the field. And yet it's written clearly enough that anyone, whether in a grad student or not, is going to benefit from reading it. So I'm really looking forward to talking with Scott about it. And with that, Scott, thanks for being with us on New Books and Genocide Studies, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Kelly, for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So listeners of the show may remember that you've been on before to talk about Rwanda, uh, but in a context that didn't really allow us to get to know you personally. So I'd like to start just by asking you to tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be interested in the study of mass violence. Sure. So my history really starts with when I was a journalist. When I uh, graduated from college in the mid-1990s, I was very interested in Africa, very interested in writing. And after learning how to be a journalist in the United States, I moved myself to Nairobi, Kenya in 1995 and began a career there as a freelance journalist. Um, I started out covering Eastern Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, a little bit in Uganda, ended up going up to Somalia and down to Zambia and a couple other places. But eventually I began to develop steady relationships with my editors. And when some big stories broke in the Great Lakes region of Africa, that Burundi, Rwanda, Eastern Congo, they assigned me to cover those stories. And so I first got exposed to some of these issues in Burundi in uh, 1996 when there was a coup. But the real work came in what's now the Democratic Republic of Congo. And, and I covered the war there from the fall of 1996 until the overthrow of President Mobutu in 1997. And essentially what happened in the course of that is that what I was witnessing was the aftermath of the Rwandan civil war and the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide because a lot of the refugees from Rwanda had taken root in eastern Congo and it was the Rwandan authorities who invaded Congo and who broke up the camps that ultimately started the war in uh, in the Congo. And in covering that, I came upon mass graves. I was exposed to the Rwanda story in ways that I had not really been exposed to previously. And that really triggered a lifelong, well, at least to date anyway, lifelong uh, passion, interest, curiosity, and, you know, uh, elements of, I'm sure, trauma um, that have propelled me on this course. So I eventually went back to graduate school in political science at the University of California, Berkeley, mm. and did my dissertation and, and first real research on these questions you know, on Rwanda. Mm. So that's a big mouthful. I'm happy to break any of that up um, or expand on it, but 
was really through my experiences as a journalist that I was exposed to this violence, exposed to the Rwanda business, and also Burundi, and that led to my interest. So I'm curious, um, I, and there's the tagline, the Peter Jennings tagline that always goes through my head when I when I think about the Congo, and I'm going to get it wrong, but he said something along the lines of, came on the news and said something along the lines of, five million people died in the last several years, and we we didn't know about it, how could that be? Uh, referring to the to long civil war in the Congo. And I'm wondering, you, you clearly decided that uh, that graduate school in academia was the direction to go. Um, and I'm wondering why you found journalism, uh, why you chose that rather than staying in journalism and trying to, to bring this to people's attention. So I love being a reporter. I mean, mm-hmm. it was incredibly exciting, and there was, from a writing point of view, it was enormously satisfying if you had, let's say, a story on page one, and you felt you know, you're in a big circulation market, like, wow, there could be 500,000 people who are getting the mm-hmm. story on their doorstep this morning. This was 20 years ago, so it was back in the day when <laughs> circulations were really strong. That was enormously powerful, and you really can reach a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think the real limitations that I felt and that drove me to graduate school were that, number one, I got very tired of skimming the surface of stories. Yeah. And it was really evident in the Congo material, the Rwanda material, where you're, just, you're, you're reporting on these you know, epic movements of people. Hmm. The overthrow of a dictator of 30 years, the, the legacy of the Rwandan genocide, and and you've got an editor that's saying, you know, I have to reduce this down to tribal conflict. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I, I understand why, you know, I, mm-hmm. but it also was enormously frustrating. And yeah. both from what I was able to communicate in a journalism format, and also just I myself was hungering for something deeper in terms of my own understanding of what was going on. And, and, I, and that's probably me by nature. So, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I am probably more comfortable in general in it academic, analytical setting than I am in a reporting setting, even if, even if I love to report. Yeah. So, so why political science? Yeah, so, well, well let me get to them. the other thing is just, the, I'll answer your question in a second, the other thing is just, yeah. I, I really felt, I, you know, I wanted a family, and the mm. job I was doing was really, was, you know, on the personal side, it was just, I, I saw a lot of lives that, that, I didn't necessarily want to have by the time I was my age yeah. now, and I'm in 40. So, so that was those are some of the big reasons. The political science. I I was an English undergraduate major, English mm. major as an undergrad, and you know I I love literature and love humanities in general. But my I felt that in going back to graduate school, I wanted to have more of an interface with the policy world and with the journalism world. And Mm -hmm. I felt that political science or the study of politics would allow a bridge, a stronger bridge between between the academic world and the policy world. In other words, I wanted to kind of keep a foot in the in the world I was leaving. (laughs) At least that's what I thought. It turned out to be a lot harder to do that than I anticipated. (laughs) Um, But I do still try, and I do in different ways try to do that. But but it is hard to bridge those worlds. In different ways, which is which is an interesting. I don't know if you're this is a, or you would be interested, but that's also an interesting conversation. Yeah, just parenthetically, I wanted I want to put a plug in for a book I've taught, which is um, 
memoir by a, a war correspondent named Janine Di, Di Giovanni that she wrote a couple years ago, ago called, or maybe four or five by now, called Ghost by Daylight, which is her story of trying to escape the world of journalism in conflict areas and how difficult that was. Um, and it's a wonderful book and well worth reading. Um, but, but you did escape or leave or whatever verb you want to use. Um, can you talk a little bit about how a political scientist approaches genocide studies compared to other disciplines? Sure. I think you know, political scientists are primarily interested in explanation mm. and primarily interested in, in theory. So I think what that means in practical terms is that we approach the history or the case material with an objective to developing something that is more generalizable than just the case. So mm-hmm. you know, our closest would probably be you know, history. I think historians want to, as best they can, capture the history, the narrative of what happened, the historical narrative. And many historians are also interested in explanation and so forth, but it's really an explanation that is typically oriented toward that particular historical set of events. Whereas a political scientist would approach the same country and say, well, what can we learn from this place that tells us in general about the phenomenon of civil war or political violence or genocide or whatever? So it has, I think, this orientation towards developing more general explanation, um, which, which is both exciting and also problematic at different, different, different <laughs> ways. Um, so I think, I think there's that element. I think political scientists also typically have a more strategic approach, meaning that they tend to interpret events according to what the, the, the interests of the main political actors are. Um, mm. And I think that tends, from a theoretical perspective, tends to be more of the approach that we would have. It's often more macro level, more focused on the national level and international dynamics um, than, let's say, an anthropological approach, which is much more local, or a sociological approach, which I think is, is, is focused much more on the social relations. Political mm-hmm. scientists are typically drawn to the, you know, to the, to the polity, to the political realm, to the government, to the state, and, and those types of uh, dimensions of it. Um, I think the challenge for me in, in trying to be yeah, I'm not saying I am, but my, my goal is to be both a good political scientist, a good scholar of Africa, and a good mm-hmm. scholar of genocide. And the challenge is how to balance those three things. And on the one hand, try to develop a, a theory of genocide or an explanation of genocide that's broader than a particular case, uh, that's able to be, to do the, you know, be, do right by the richness of the history and culture of Africa and the different places where I work, and that also is dealing with genocide studies, which I think from a political science point of view, I think this has changed, but for a long time it was really perceived that that was more of a like a, a normative issue, like that was an like issue of right and wrong. Genocide mm. was what it was a policy problem. It was a social issue. It wasn't something you could study using social science methods. Mm. And I think that's changed. But that was part of the fight. Not the fight, but that was part of what I, what I was working against when I started to get into this field you know, 20 years ago now. Or not quite, 15 years ago. 
And so, 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 so that, so those are some of the things that, that I think are, are fun center when I'm thinking about, about what to do and how to do it. So let me ask you to kind of pursue that a yeah, little sure, bit further, because sure. in several places in the book, and I'm, I'm, I'm not using your language, so this, this is my language, but although it's a little bit stolen from one of your articles, um, you talk about how you see your book as kind of building on the initial wave or set of studies in the genocide studies the discipline of genocide studies and and building on them by considering new sources and new cases and new maybe new questions. So so can you talk just a little bit about how this field of genocide studies has evolved? Yeah, absolutely. So I the way I look at the history of genocide studies, what you had were before the end of the Cold War, but let's say before the mid nineties, before mm-hmm. Rwanda and Bosnia. You had a group of scholars who sought to study genocide from a comparative perspective. A lot of them, I think, were motivated by uh, bringing the Armenian case into a discussion. Mm-hmm. Many of them wanted to see the Holocaust from a comparative point of view, and some of that was driven by experience in Africa, some of it was driven by experience in Cambodia and different other places. And and I'd say this 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 group of scholars, in many ways, they were the pioneers of genocide studies. They were working in an interdisciplinary fashion and came up with the first set of theories that could explain why genocide happened from a comparative perspective. But I think they didn't, um, their work, while very good in different places, never really reached the mainstream of their discipline. So whether it was sociology, history, political science, anthropology, or whatever, I think that it was seen, again, even from all of those disciplines, as something that was more of a um, spe- very specialized, very normative agenda that people had. Mm-hmm. And I think that what really changed was, was the occurrence in the 90s of Rwanda and Bosnia, the later Darfur, East Timor, a couple other really profile, high-profile cases where the, the question of mass violence question of genocide was on the front pages of news store, of newspapers mm. day in day out for almost you know for a while and and I think that attracted the more the broader questions of of what is this phenomenon how do we define it how do we study it comparatively and what methods can we use to study it comparatively what can we learn from the study of other kinds of political violence to make sense of this phenomenon, I think that it really it, it emerged as a subject of comparative study in a different kind of way. Uh, so I think that was the, that's the biggest change. I think in addition to that, you had in general a rise of the study of human rights. You know, if you look mm-hmm. prior to the mid '90s, human rights as a subject wasn't really studied in the academy that much. But with the end of the Cold War and its prominence as a policy issue, as an issue of concern, I think there again you saw a real resurgence of studies of, of or not resurgence, a surge of studies of, of human rights. Um, and I think, lastly, I think in maybe less less of an ex, less of an extent, but still real, is I feel that Holocaust studies began to look for ways of broad, broadening out that work, 
Mm-hmm. There's been such rich, intensive, careful, thoughtful historiography on the Holocaust. But I also think that, you know, whatever it is now, 70 years later, I think that some of the people working in that field, field were looking for, for both to generate insights from other cases and bring that to bear on the Holocaust, and also to think about the Holocaust as not simply this completely unique phenomenon, but one mm-hmm. that can be thought of in, in relationship to other cases. And I think that, too, gave a new momentum or new impetus for, for genocide studies. And I think, and then in turn, there was, an, uh, I think, you started seeing a bunch of scholars working on dissertations and or established scholars switching to study genocide, and that really gave rise to a, a whole new generation, if you will, of of scholarship on genocide that has really broadened the field and I think put it more squarely in the center of different disciplines. You know, I think it's normalized genocide studies a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how I would discuss it, you know, narrate that story. Yeah. So so what do you what do you call yourself? Are you a political scientist who studies genocide or a genocide scholar who happens to do it through the lens of political science or something else? Yeah, I'm a political scientist who studies genocide. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, I'm a political scientist who studies Africa, who studies genocide, mm. studies political, mm-hmm. political violence. Um, and I think that's been beaten into me by my training. But, you know, it's, it's just from a, a strategic perspective, it's... Ooh, I think political scientists are trained to be political scientists, trained to teach graduate students as political scientists. Mm. And I wouldn't really be, I don't think I'd have the position that I have unless I was able to see myself that way. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't, there aren't, if there aren't many departments of gen, there are not, as far as I know, departments of genocide right. studies. There are departments of African studies, but they're with with, in general, area studies declining in prominence in different academic settings. It's really, I think it's the traditional disciplines that are where a lot of the action is at. Uh, And so I think it's been important in my career to to be a political scientist first and then to have problems that I study as a political Mm -hmm. scientist. Well, let's turn to the book. Um, Can I just add one thing, Kelly? But I, yeah, try to, I try to do, I think there are different ways of doing that. Uh-huh. And as a political scientist, I also really try to be incredibly respectful and careful of the literature that precedes me and the literature mm-hmm. that exists in other disciplines. So you know, we'll, we'll talk about the book in a second, but a lot of my book empirically was about studying five countries, uh, four yeah. of which I didn't know that well. And mm-hmm. the other was Rwanda, but before, which I didn't know that well, and it was really, I tried to be incredibly um, respectful and careful with the, the scholarship that preceded me to do right by that. And so, anyway, as a way of saying I'm a political scientist first, but I am also very respectful of all disciplines. So. Well, and it's, a, it's one of the pressing issues both in the field and in academia today, is what does it mean to be interdisciplinary, or are we transdisciplinary, or you know, how do you function with a disciplinary home? and yet respect and utilize or mine or immerse yourself in, in the other disciplines. And it's hard. Yes. Yeah. So let's go to the book. And, and for social scientists and political scientists in particular, definitions are critical. 
Um, so, so what are you trying to? I guess I'll start by asking, what are you trying to do in the book? What's the big question sure. you're asking? Okay, here's the big question. Big question is really why does genocide occur in some places and not occur in other places? And so, from a methodological point of view, this book is really insisting on the importance of studying non-genocides, of studying mm-hmm. cases that had the possibility of being a Rwanda, Burundi, a Sudan, a Bosnia, or whatever your case may be, but did not. Mm-hmm. And the reason, there are a bunch of different reasons why I think that's vital, but the main reason is was a theoretical one. And the theoretical reason was that I felt that we'd gone to a place in the study of genocide where, where scholars had isolated a set of factors that are the typical ones that drive genocide and related forms of mass violence, but that if you look at those factors, they apply to many more countries that do not experience genocide. So in other words, there's a mismatch. We are over-predicting genocide. Or in mm-hmm. statistical terms, too many false positives. We are, when, Whenever someone does a quantitative study, you can see for every case that's correctly predicted, it's something like 30 are incorrectly predicted <laughs> in terms of like they, the theory would say or the models would say that genocide should ha- be happening in this place, but it's not. And so it became really important for me to try to understand, okay, what's going on in the negative cases? What's going on in the places that have the ingredients of genocide, but that don't experience it? And studying them alongside the ones that do is the way that we can better understand why this phenomenon happens. That's the next, to me, was the next stage of research in advancing this field. And one of the points you make, I think, is, is, is once, once you think about it, is dead on. But I, I suspect most people would, would, would imagine the 20th century in the last decade and a half, uh, the 21st century, as, as one in which genocide or mass violence was pervasive. But the point you make is that that's, that's not really true. More cases don't end up in mass genocide, many, maybe many more cases than do. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think, there's, we've, I think it's kind of a, a little bit of a sloppy habit that we've developed in this field, me too, that, you know, where we say, oh, the 20th century was a century of genocide. Mm-hmm. And yes, we had these cases that had a scale that we hadn't really seen before. The Armenian case, the Nazi case, you know, what happened under Stalin, what happened under Mao, what happened under Pol Pot, you know, etc. Rwanda, Bosnia, and so forth. Um, but if you look at all the cases that could have resulted in genocide, yeah. there are so many more countries, so many more periods of time that didn't that I think we have to be a little cautious and really recognize that genocide is a very, I mean, thankfully, a very exceptional uh, set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that is a contra- not a, Some people disagree with me about that, and, and again, it comes, also comes back to definitions. Um, but I do think we have to put the ones... I think the way the field of genocide studies has developed is to say, what are the cases of genocide and what do they have in common? Mm -hmm. And I think what that neglects is thinking of, uh, well, first of all, it gives you a misunderstanding, I think, that genocide is more common than it is. But what it neglects from a methodological point of view is just 
we should be comparing the ones that do exist to the ones that don't exist to try to understand what's different in the ones that do exist from the ones that don't exist. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so let's be careful, I guess. And so, and maybe you could just then say, how, how are you conceptualizing sure. genocide? Okay. What definition are you using? Right. So I struggled a lot with this in my in my career, and and I, as a graduate student, I remember I took a class on on conceptualization, and I ended up writing a paper on genocide. And you know, so I've been it's a, it's a problem that has really plagued the field, and in general, mm-hmm. you know, plagues our ability to make generalizable findings. So I spent I spent a lot of time on this issue. Um, but essentially, the, the the conceptualization in the book is that there has to be violence directed against a particular category of people. An ethnic group, a racial group, could be a political group, but that it's what I call group-selective violence. It's, it's categorical violence. It's violence that chooses its targets based on their ostensible group membership. Um, and it has to be violence that's on a very large scale. So it has mm-hmm. to be violence that is systematic, it's repeated over time, it is um, usually multi-agency violence, meaning that it's, you're dealing with the army or several units in an army and the police and the civilian administration, or if you're dealing with non-state actors, it's you know some coordination that exists between different commanders. And basically it's violence that repeats over time and over space, on a systematic scale, against a group. Um, now, in the book, I also talk about specifically genocidal violence, which mm-hmm. is violence that has those features, but that also is aimed at the destruction of the group. So that is, yeah. you know, the kind of classic understanding of genocide is that you need to have a specific intent to destroy the group, a specific, on the part of perpetrators, a specific, the specific, almost extermination mode. And, and at the end of the day, in the book and in general, I think it can be very difficult in practice to know whether or not that specific intent exists. Mm. And we can certainly, there are, you know, there's the Holocaust, where it's you know really clear, but in a lot of cases, it's I think difficult to really know if that intent exists. And so, from an empirical point of view, what we can look for is is there a large scale systematic um, uh, violence that's practiced and that's exercised against a specific group, and that's the ultimately the character of violence that I'm most interested. You talk about a logic of genocide, and you kind of hinted at this earlier when you were talking about political science, Uh, but I think many people hearing this phrase for the first time are going to be taken aback by the idea that there can be a logic of genocide. What do you mean by that? Well, I think what I'm trying to do is to uncover the, the inner rationale from the point of view of the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. And from that to infer the circumstances in which that rationale is likely to arise. And 
the reason, and it's true, and you're absolutely right that, that I get that from political science, and I think that in particular political scientists have made a lot of, have gained a lot of traction, analytical traction, on thinking about a logic of violence, you know, these, uh, a phenom- political violence, a phenomenon that we thought wasn't rational, wasn't logical, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. trying to understand why actors would use violence and then trying to understand from that the circumstances in which they would use violence. Um, and so, so what I was trying to do is, is to take some of those insights and think about how a logic of genocide might be different from a standard logic of, of violence. Mm. And, you know, I, you know, in the book, it, I go through a bunch of different elements of that, and I won't, I won't rehearse that here, mm-hmm. but, but just trying to understand why, from a, from a leader's point of view, it would appear to be the strategic or the right thing to do to try to destroy a group or inflict such massive violence on the group that it couldn't really survive anymore. And, um, you know, and for me, that I think about that in terms of both there being a strong security threat to mm-hmm. the perpetrator group on the one hand, and also a decision on the part of the perpetrator group that the target group, whoever the violence is being inflicted upon, is seen in some ways to be what I call unwinnable, like that they cannot be reformed. Mm-hmm. And it's really that combination of the group presenting a threat and the sense that the group is um, can't be won over, doesn't belong, and is is never going to accept, you know, accept the authority of the perpetrator group. That's ultimately that combination is particularly dangerous uh, from a genocide point of view. And so, one of the things that's not unique, but um, let me and I would just say one more. Yeah. Let me just add. To that. I mean. I know that may seem esoteric, but I'm really trying to, in this book, I'm really trying to drill down and drill down and drill down to understand mm-hmm. what's going on in these cases um, and what the, the sort of baseline thinking approach that would lead perpetrators to do these things. Um, and why, you know, again, because it's rare, what's going on in those rare circumstances mm-hmm. that's different? Well, and so one of the things that you highlight in the book, yeah. and you don't, and and you didn't quite talk about there, is this idea of founding narratives. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Right. Okay. So, the, you know, the the basic argument of the book is that you need two, two to three things to produce this type of violence. Mm-hmm. One is you need a security threat or a perceived security threat. And it's typically going to happen in war, but can also happen, you know, from a threat of coup or a real threat of coup. But you need some type of usually military material threat to the ruling authorities. I'll deal here with state genocide, which is the most common. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you need that threat to be processed through ideology or process through what I call founding narrative. And so the premise of the book is that I'm going to study a bunch of different conflicts, places where there was conflict. So 
you know, places where we think genocide would be possible. That's what the theory tells us. I buy that theory. The genocide happens typically when there is a security threat. But look at places where elites escalated violence, thought the, the enemy group was unwinnable, dangerous, they had to be eliminated, and places where the opposite happened, where in the face of a serious security threat, the political elites in one way or another either restrained the use of violence or they reached out to the enemy group, tried to negotiate with them in a sincere fashion, and tried to find some way to accommodate their differences. So, so it's really, so the, the, that led me to my conclusion, which is the second big factor, is that it, there are a set of principles, a set, an, an, an ideological orientation of political elites that is, on the one hand, can be very exclusionary, or on the other hand, can be more pluralistic or inclusionary. So, the and I call that the founding narrative. What do the elites say the state and the nation are all about? Do they say that the state and nation are principally for a central ethnic or racial or religious group, or do they see the nation as fundamentally composed of a plural community? And that then gets that, that principle, that ideology, that, that what I call it a founding narrative, then gets filtered into the military crisis. Mm -hmm. And so when you get a military crisis and the threat is coming from a group that lies outside of that founding narrative, that's seen as not a core population to the state, that's when these the sort of dynamics of using mass violence to destroy the threat arise. And by contrast, where you have narratives that are uh, much more plural, much more inclusive, and so forth, there you get a restraint on the use of maximum violence, and you get elites who want to bring in those, um, want to bring in the, the enemy group and try to compromise or find a solution, or even if they don't do that, they're not willing to, you know, destroy the group, uh, the group that's faced that's posing the threat. And so it's really through the comparison of cases that otherwise look very similar from a kind of structural point of view, um, from what we think we, what we think causes genocide, but that have different outcomes, that have different results. It's through that comparison that I come up with this conclusion that it's about this sort of long-running legacy of, of ideology or, or founding narrative. I hope that's not too Start. confusing. I mean, no, it, it, no. Okay, okay. Yeah. I'm, no, in fact, I, um, when I teach uh, oh, several subjects, I often point out this kind of change in the American metaphor for what America is supposed to be from the melting pot of the ABC after-school specials, which for non-U.S. Uh, listeners are a series of kind of TV broadcasts, oh, 30 years or so, that were meant to, in cartoon form, illustrate what America was about, um, to the toss salad metaphor that is now taught to my kids anyway in middle school and high school. Um, and I started out actually as a, my, uh, my academic career as a historian of the Habsburg monarchy in the First World War which really can be understood as a, 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 as, as a squabble, in, at least from the Hobsburg perspective, about what founding narrative was the one that everybody should buy, buy into mm -hmm. for that empire. Uh -huh. 
So how did you go about finding out what these um, founding narratives were? Yeah. Well, in the book, the main way is that I study what presidents say. And mm -hmm. the empirical method was to um, find two times during the year when every year presidents made national addresses to their, to their populations. And so what I did is I, went in many, most cases, went back to the original newspapers of records, um, got the original speeches, you know, photocopied and analyzed them from basically independence until the point of the crisis, the, whatever the crisis would be in these countries, and then trace how those ideas that, uh, oh, and whether those ideas that, that I was calling founding narratives that you would see across all these different speeches, whether or not they played out in the crisis themselves, in the military crisis themselves. Um, so it was really through studying the content of what presidents said that I tried to elicit this, uh, these narratives and then tried to see whether or not there was a secondary literature that, that agreed, you know, that, that whether or not there was any consistency, like this is how scholars who've been working on these countries for years, whether or not that was something that they too were seeing in, the rep in, in, in terms of the core politics of the country. So I, I've got to be the historian for a moment. Sure. Um, and I think this is point, I think there's an answer in your book that I'm kind of pointing to, but the, the historian then is tempted to argue, to ask the question, you've, you've looked at this more or less from an elite level. How do you know whether the ordinary people on the street heard these speeches, cared about these speeches, believed in what they were saying, did what they were being urged to do? Yep. Yeah, so it's a, it's the right question to ask, and you know, I didn't investigate that directly, mm -hmm. in, you know, in the in the book. Um, instead, what I tried to understand was whether or not there was a kind of what I call a resonance, a social and cultural mm -hmm. resonance of the values that the elites were promoting with some of the everyday practices uh, in the society. So I'll take the example of Mali, which is you know a good example where you had in the 90s a leadership that was emphasizing it, it was a multi-ethnic uh, nation, a nation based on dialogue, a nation based on pluralism, and they then reached into their deep history, going back to the 14th, 15th century, when there was a great Mali empire, to say our Mali empire was constructed by this, uh, you know, by this, by building a, big tent, plural uh, um, system. And then in the everyday practices of Malians, which does date back to that period, you have a practice called cousinage or uh, joking relationships, um, mm. anthropological terms, where people in everyday life are often joking with people who have different last names about their history together. And and it's it's a way of, of kind of... Kind of conflict resolution at a local level, but everyone has a sense in Mali and that, you know, that they're living in the same space as people of other ethnic groups, but it's not a big mm. deal. It's not a big deal. It's like something mm. you joke about. It's something you make fun of. It's something you live with all the time. And people are bound together um, through history um, uh, of, of, of that they live together in the same space, and they can do that, and they can joke about it, and they can have those kinds of relationships. And the elites kind of crafted a whole political narrative out of that, 
and I think that, again, there's a connection there between what's happening at the local level, at the social level, and what's happening at the, at the national level. So, so that's part of the answer. And the other part mm-hmm. of the answer is I do, at the end of the day, see genocide as a top-down process. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I really do think that you know, the more I've studied this, the more I, I feel that, that, for the most part, you need to have the, you know, the central government or the central authorities um, committed to this program and typically initiating it. That's not to say local actors aren't important by any stretch of the imagination, but that in terms of the origin of the practice and the origin of the policy, it's coming from the elite uh, rather than from the local level in general. Mm-hmm. In general. So you do several lengthy case studies and then a variety of smaller examples. The, the, the longer case studies all come from Africa. Why choose Africa as, as the location for, to draw your yep. sources from yep. or your studies yep. from? So the other critique of genocide studies that I have is that I feel that we've been comparing cases that are really, really different to each other. Mm-hmm. So we've been looking at Cambodia and our, you know, the Armenian genocide in the late Ottoman Empire to the Nazi Holocaust to Rwanda and Bosnia, you know, really different countries, really different time periods, mm-hmm. uh, really different regions. Um, and that, I think, makes it harder to isolate what's specifically going on in these places that's different from the places where the violence does not occur, because these are countries that are so different between each other, and in some ways the cases and the violence are so different between each other. Mm-hmm. So what I try to do is to reorient the comparative framework, that is what I'm comparing, you know, comparing one to the other, away from this trans-historical, trans-regional approach to a more focused one. And so I did that both in terms of time and in terms of location. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of, you know, to get to answer your question, in terms of location, in terms of geography, I wanted uh, to have countries that came from a, you know, the same region um, and, and, and that were relatively similar in terms of colonial history, in terms of, in terms of economic structure or level of income, in terms of um, you know, general, um, general influences on one another, things of that nature. And so that's why that led me to an African comparison. Mm. Um, So it's basically looking for, you know, what we would call, you know, homogeneity or the homogeneity of comparisons, comparisons that are relatively more similar. And so that's what led me. And then in Africa, the other reason for Africa is you have both, again, a variety of cases that did result in genocide and mass violence and a variety of cases that didn't. So there's a lot of variation there that I, I felt was important to study. So there's no way we can talk about all of the examples. So so let's just pick one, uh-huh. uh, the Ivory Coast, Côte d'Ivoire. Can you maybe some, and you're, you're, you're not going to do another interview with me after you hear this question, but can you maybe summarize what happens in this, yeah. um, in this place that makes people afraid sure. genocide is going to occur there? Yeah, Cote d'Ivoire was, you know, one of, is, is one of the key cases of the book, and I, you know, I really studied it hard or tried to study it hard for basically mm-hmm. close to eight years. And hmm. so here's, here are the risk factors that were happening in Cote d'Ivoire. Um, you had a country that was experiencing a civil war. So the, I guess maybe I should back up and tell, say something about Cote d'Ivoire. This Cote d'Ivoire is in West Africa. 
It's a country that um, for many years was very, very stable, one of great economic growth. It's the largest producer of cocoa in the world, mm-hmm. one of the largest of coffee, and it's just a kind of agricultural powerhouse in West Africa and one of the economic engines of that region. And it had its first president, Felix Houphouët-Boigny, who was the, um, was the architect of much of, of Cote d'Ivoire's success, passed away in the early 1990s. And what followed was a uh, very complicated history, but essentially it became a succession fight. Who was going to replace him? And the terms of that succession fight were fought over who was a true Ivorian and who was not. Mm-hmm and whether or not one of the key candidates who was Muslim and who was a northerner could in fact serve as the inheritor of the Cote d'Ivoire legacy, could be a president, could be a candidate. And his name is Alassane Ouattara, now president, which for reasons I'll get to in a minute, Um, but he was excluded. And that began the birth of a doctrine in Cote d'Ivoire called Ivoirite, or this concept that um, this concept that the true Ivorian, the country belonged to a particular category of Ivorians, and those were Southerners and those were Christians. And so from the point of view of a risk factor, it had one of the key ones that in the literature on genocide people point to, which is, which is nationalism, uh, which is this idea, again, of a kind of ethnic, an ethnic nationalism, which I agree with, by the way. Mm-hmm. Over time in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, there were a bunch of, a lot of political instability. You had the exclusion of this Muslim candidate. You had followed by a coup, followed by a very violent election in the early 2000s, followed by a civil war that started in 2002. And the civil war essentially pitted the northern, a, a rebel group from the north, who were primarily Muslims, against the government forces, which were based in the south, and were predominantly, at least on the government side, had a lot of uh, Christian and, um, and Southern representation. So from the point of view of genocide studies, it had the big risk factors going for it. You had a civil war, you had serious political instability, you had an ideological orientation which suggested that there was one group that should be excluded and discriminated against, which they were, and one that to whom the you know the, the country belonged, um, and in addition to that, you have these other kind of other factors that in genocide studies we we think are very important, which is you had a militia group, you had a group called the Jeunes Patriotes, who were the uh, kind of the firebrand wing of the ruling party that were committing violence. You had a kind of hate media. Um, you had a little bit of an economic decline in the country, so. When you're looking at genocide and you're looking at the factors that can cause it, it you know, Cote d'Ivoire was sort of hitting all of those buttons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of alarm bells going off uh, in the international community about another Rwanda, about the potential for genocide in Cote d'Ivoire, going back to 2002 and stretching all the way to um, what became a second round of civil war in 2010 and 2011. So, but it never happened, mm-hmm. right? and, it, and, and so I got interested in Cote d'Ivoire be, initially because everyone was comparing it to Rwanda, and yet when I looked at the dynamics of violence in Cote d'Ivoire, 
they were really different from mm-hmm. Rwanda. And even though everyone was talking about hate media and whatnot, when I studied what people were saying, political leaders were saying it was different. It had a different character to it. Mm-hmm. And that's what brought me to Cote d'Ivoire to begin with and started my interview process and started my investigation of that case to try to understand what was different. Um, and so, I don't know if that, is that a concise enough <laughs> history of Cote d'Ivoire? Yeah, oh, it's remarkable. Okay, so, so that, that's, what, that's what got me going. And then my conclusions for Cote d'Ivoire were, okay, so if you were to ask anyone in the policy world, like, why didn't Cote d'Ivoire result in mass violence and genocide, the answer would be international intervention. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that starting from 2002, there was a robust international intervention led initially by France and, uh, and the, um, the uh, West African community of states, ECOWAS, and then supplemented and, and taken over by the United Nations, which had a very large peacekeeping force on the ground in Cote d'Ivoire. And from my perspective, I think that, that, that was, that's true. Right, the presence of international peacekeepers played a positive role. But from my perspective, from a comparative perspective, I also was not satisfied by that because I had seen other cases where international peacekeepers were present and where that both enraged different actors and in and of itself was not sufficient to cause escalation uh, that could lead to you know, mass violence. You know, we, we forget that in Rwanda, even if it was difference force and in Bosnia you had UN international involvement and rather than serving to tamp down the the uh, violence it, it actually seemed to in some ways have aided to in the escalation of it so I was trying to understand again what was different in Cote d'Ivoire and my answer really at the end of the day it started at you know I got the idea from interviews I conducted with intellectuals in Cote d'Ivoire and people in the military. And I would go to them and I would say, you know, look, I'm a, I'm a scholar of Rwanda. People are comparing Rwanda to Cote d'Ivoire. Like, why is Cote d'Ivoire not worse than it is? And they would look at me like, are you crazy? Cote d'Ivoire is terrible. <laughs> like, we can't believe what's happening in Cote d'Ivoire. How can you come and say, you know, it's not worse in Cote d'Ivoire and, and so forth. But eventually, the, you know, the conversation got going and you know, in the military, you know, I was interviewing colonels, majors, and I was trying to get up as high up as I could in the military. And you know, basically, you know, when I probed them and probed them, and said, look, we don't have an ethnic definition of the enemy. We don't see the enemy as an ethnic group, fundamentally. There's no operating manual. There's no sense in the military that this, is a, this group is defined in, eth- in ethnic or religious terms. Um, and moreover that would usually prompt a long soliloquy on the history of the person I was speaking to <laughs> in which they would talk about, you know, my sister is this, my brother married so-and-so, you know, yeah. we are a mixed country with this in mm-hmm. French, you know, we are a, we are a country of brassage of um, mixture, mixturing and intermixing, if you will. And, um, and I would, you know, and, and the, almost, to the T, everyone that I would push on this question would come back to this point. It's a country of, of movement, of migration, of mixing. We don't think, despite Ivoirite, at, at root, we don't think about ourselves or as the country as having a specific ethnic or religious character. So that raised the question for me of why. 
You know, why weren't the political elites, the military elites, why weren't they thinking about the country in this way? It was, it was right before them to be able to do it, and you had a group of political actors who were trying to, who were making that argument, right? And so, you know, ultimately, I felt that there was a strong narrative in Cote d'Ivoire about the importance of unity, tolerance, pluralism, and mixing that had really been instilled by the first president, by Félix Fouadouini, who was not a Democrat. He was, you know, he was an authoritarian. He did not like dissent. He did not like opposition. But he saw his job as the founding leader of Côte d'Ivoire, not only to grow the country and modernize the country, but to make a nation, to make a country, make a, a plural community out of a some 60 tribes, sorry, 60 mm-hmm. ethnic groups, and, six, and, and a bunch of different religions. And when you go back and you studied you know, his speeches and you studied what his priorities were, over and over again in his speeches, you see things like, you know, um, our job as Ivorians is to tolerate each other, is to figure out what our commonalities are, to have unity and... and um, you know, even his posters, and I have one that I reproduce in the book, is about unity and dialogue. Um, and at the end of the day, I think that created a rich, powerful narrative in Cote d'Ivoire, particularly among the elites, but I think it did extend down below them, about, about what the country stood for, what the country was mm. about. And when they looked at their own history, they said, look, Cote d'Ivoire under Hufo Bueni was thriving. It was a country where we became something out of nothing. We grew, we had this incredible, um, uh, you know, we became this major cocoa producer in the world. It had political clout, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and so he was someone that was, was charismatic. I think that he was someone that people had respect for. And they remembered him saying, we stand for unity, we stand for dialogue, we stand for tolerance, we stand for pluralism. And I think that narrative remains very, very powerful in the country and restrained the use of violence, restrained at least the escalation of mm-hmm. violence in the country. Mm-hmm. Those ideas restrained the escalation of violence. Um, and so that that's really... That's the main, you know, that's, that's what I think mattered in Cote d'Ivoire. And there's a secondary argument about the economics of Cote d'Ivoire, which, which are about how the country, its tax base is really, is really agricultural, or at least has been agricultural. And the would-be targets of mass violence were many of the laborers in that agricultural system. Uh, for, for, for complex reasons I can go into, but maybe too far afield for our conversation. And so if there were to have been a, a genocide, um, it would have really harmed the revenue of the country and harmed the, the, the tax base uh, and the economic vitality of the country that did still exist. And I think that created a kind of argument for moderates, an argument for economic elites to say, you know, just like... Maybe you guys have your differences, but don't don't go around killing everybody because we have we have a lot here that we want to protect, and and uh, and I think that too played a role in, mm-hmm. in Cote d'Ivoire. 
So when you talked about Mali, you talked about the long history of this kind of integration and multi-ethnic uh, the uh, nature of the society. What is it of, of the Cote d'Ivoire president? What was it that made the narrative he tried to propagate or, or to present? Why did people accept it? And when they were less willing to accept the later counter narrative um, uh, uh, that attempted to make the country into a nationalist country. I don't have a, I don't have a great answer to that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I, you know, my speculation is that um, I don't have a great answer to that question. I don't have a great answer to why he chose that as his, Mm. as his, Mm -hmm. as his approach. Um, Again, I can speculate on that, but I don't have a great answer to that question. Um, I think that they accepted it in part because of the practice of what was done. Mm. And so there are times when you can have a pluralist narrative that is essentially a cover for what is the ethnic domination of one group in a country. And I think in the case of Cote d'Ivoire, that really wasn't the case. I mean, I'm not the president who for Gwenyi definitely favored his own ethnic group. But he very much and was very conscious of the advancement of many groups in Cote d'Ivoire. And he, he saw that again as integral to his political mission. So whether it was his cabinet, whether it was investments in education or in hospitals or whatever it would be, he very much distributed the wealth of the country uh, across it and across different groups. And if you were receiving a scholarship to study abroad, it wasn't just one ethnic group that was getting them. In fact, it was often the case that it was the ethnic group that represented the opposition. Mm-hmm. So I think the reality also was you know, conformed to the, um, the, the, the speeches or the propaganda or the ideology, the vision. And I think mm-hmm. that made it more palatable um, and then related to that is you also had the, uh, the, the agricultural approach of the country. What Hufort Bueni and, and also the French before him encouraged was, was, was physical migration. So you had people moving from one part of the country to other parts of the country to, to grow crops. And that's part of the problem in Cote d'Ivoire that has to do with land and land rights and who has access who owns the land, who has access to the land, and so forth. But again, the practice was, it's not like every ethnic group in this country has a right to go where he, you know, every member of an ethnic group has a right to go where he or she wishes. And that, I think, led to, again, a kind of mixing of groups, and also, again, just a sense that this was a country, fundamentally, that was multi-ethnic. Um, mm-hmm. And that practice, I think, also uh, contributed to um, you know, contributed to the acceptance of his vision. So, in some ways, that's a way of my, my question is a way of transitioning to, to maybe your conclusion. And I should pause and say there's a lot more to this book than than we've been able to get to. And I encourage people to go out and read it and buy it, and because it's really a, a thoughtful analysis of, of of the subject. But but. For matters of time, let's let's kind of think about the conclusion. And and you take point or you take pains to explain you're not a policymaker, but but you do draw some general principles from your study. 
Uh, and I wonder if you might just identify one or two or three that you think uh, are particularly important in terms of thinking about how genocide can be maybe prevented or at least made less likely. Yeah. So, well, first of all, thanks for the kind words about the book. And <laughs> this is the first interview I've done on it, and so I, mm. I feel I'm, um, you know, maybe in a year I'll have more concise answers to your question. <laughs> but, uh, but I appreciate that very much. So, but look, on the prevention side, I think as you really, I, I, I accept the difference between essentially prevention when you're trying to start stop these this violence from happening mm-hmm. from ever starting, basically. And response, which is like the violence is starting and you want to try to mitigate it or stop it. And those are two different, in a way, issues. And very roughly speaking, I think on the prevention side, it's domestic actors that are most important. And on the response side, it's going to be more the international or external actors who have more margin for maneuver. So on the domestic side, on the prevention side, the you know the conclusion of the book is, and you can't engineer this, but it's still the conclusion, which is it's really important for leaders in plural countries to emphasize that the nation is composed of multiple groups, mm-hmm. and it does not belong to a hierarchy of groups, not a single group that really has power, and that they look for ways to share power, distribute power in non-exclusive ways. And that's a little bit of a pipe dream, but still, I think, at the end of the day, you know, a fundamental conclusion of the book and something that we should be emphasizing pluralism. Not saying democracy, that's a different question, but pluralism, about multi-ethnic belonging or multi-religious belonging in the same state. Um, The second thing is, and again, a little bit of a pipe dream, but nonetheless, you have to put on the table is that, and these issues are related, but to try to stop war. You know, and 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 if and because still at the end of the day, it's security dynamics that drive the use of violence, mm-hmm. that drive that that push leaders to use violence to solve problems. That really, in my view, only happens in the context of threat or the perception of threat. And and so the question is, how do you reduce threat? And so one way is to try to figure out a way to mediate between armed actors or to prevent the the outbreak of war in the first place. And that's one of the reasons why I say conflict management is actually essential to the question of prevention of genocide. We think about these as separate fields, but they really should be integrated in some way. Um, and And then if a conflict does break out, trying to find ways to, uh, in one way or another, diminish the threats on both sides, whether through peacekeeping, whether through information, uh, whether through um, the restriction of, of arms to a particular area. I mean, again, very difficult to do, um, but, in, but as those are, the, those are the principles that flow from the book. Uh, those are some of the most important on the domestic side. And then I guess the third one would be the sort of diversifying of economies and mm-hmm. creating economic incentives for the restraint on the use of violence. On the international side, I think there I conclude that one, actors in these places are sensitive to cost. In other words, Mm -hmm. that they are aware, they're making calculations about what to do. And it's important to try to get in their heads to say, if you do this, if you escalate violence, 
then you want to be able to, uh, you're going to face these new costs. And so whether it's the threat of prosecution, whether it's the threat of sanctions or targeted sanctions, you know, in theory, they should work. They don't often work in practice, but they, they should in theory work, or at least my conclusion suggests that elites are paying attention to these kinds of yeah. issues. Mm-hmm. And then in the case where, where the, you know, raising the cost fails and you're still escalating, the violence is still escalating, then I think it's really about trying to handicap the ability to, uh, to use violence in a mass systematic fashion. So to go back to our definitional conversation, I draw from my analysis of the concept um, policy prescriptions that have to do with trying to interrupt the mechanics of, of building a genocide coalition, so whether at the national level among elites or whether at the local level where they're where they're where they are actually committing the violence against individuals, that the international approach should be to try to interrupt that process in some fashion. Again, not easy, but mm-hmm. it's providing some concrete principles in mind that can guide the you know the international response to these kinds of atrocity situations. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, and I think you and I could probably talk for another hour or so, but that seems unfair. Um, and so thank you very much for being on the show. I just have a couple kind of concluding questions, and, and they're pretty standard questions. And, and so the first is for people interested in going further, whether that's broadly in genocide studies or in African studies, what one or two things would you recommend they read or see? Yeah, it's a great question, and I've been thinking about that question. And so I have to say, there's a book that I recently read, which which I found very disturbing and yet also very, very compelling. And that is a book by, by someone I know, but, but I still think the book is, is fantastic, by a journalist named Thierry Cruvelier. C-R-U-V-E-L-L-E-R. And he wrote a book called The Master of Confessions, uh, Making yeah. of a Khmer Rouge Torture. And essentially what it is is a study of the trial of, of Doik, probably not pronouncing that right, who was the commander of the F-21 torture center in, uh, in Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge. So someone, you know, this is the sort of the symbol of the Khmer Rouge violence, where you had some 16,000, 17,000 people coming in, being interrogated, forced to lie and make false confessions, and then being killed. And um, Doik, in this, and, and then much later you had this, this hybrid tribunal, and the first case of it was his trial. And TV, I think, in a very subtle fashion, a very compelling fashion, describes the mindset of this man mm-hmm. and describes his, um, his, his thinking as disturbing as it is. And it's a, um, you know, it's a very, very uh, powerful yeah. uh, account that just makes you really try to get into the head. Of, it's like an Eichmann of of Cambodia, get into mm-hmm. the head of this guy. And, and it doesn't have the kind of ordinary, you know, the ordinary man baggage of the banality of evil baggage of the Eichmann trial, but it has a lot of that care, that feeling of like, oh, you kind of get in, you try to understand this mass murderer um, better. And it's very disturbing. It's very disturbing. I mean, that's a fantastic book. And I think, mm-hmm. um, 
a book that I would recommend also, which is going to be coming out uh, this fall, uh, is again a book that um, I encourage to be brought out in English. And it's a book that was written by Tom Rwanda, and it's called From War to Genocide. And it's by a, a French sociologist named Andre Gishawa. And Gishawa was an expert witness for the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. And what's really fantastic about this book is it, it, it takes you, it sort of shows the escalation process in Rwanda in ways that I think no other book has. So we've learned from the Holocaust, we've learned from other cases that there is this process of escalation, that there is this buildup of radicalization um, over time. And what Gishawa does is really walks us through that process in Rwanda and shows how a policy of genocide was born. And it, 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 it again, shows you how processual that was, that is how it, it happened over time, and in a way, how contextual that was, how dependent on what was happening around them it was. And so it's a really terrific book as well. It's, you know, it's dense, you need to, you know, but it's really rewarding in terms of, I think, being true to the dynamics of genocide. Well, I will add my uh, endorsement of the uh, Cruvelier book. We've had him on the podcast to talk about that book. It's a wonderful book. Um, and I look forward to reading the other one when it comes out. Sadly, my French is not as good as my English or my German. But, but so the last question is a simple one. Um, and I suppose you're allowed to answer planting my garden or desperately wanting the semester to be over. But what are you working on now? So I'm working on now finishing a well, two projects. The, the mm-hmm. first project is one that's almost done, which is a book for the Holocaust Museum. That is essentially it's called Fundamentals of Atrocity Prevention. And it's designed as a kind of one-stop shop introduction to this field. And when I say this field, I mean both like the definition of genocide and mass atrocities, like what causes it, what causes genocide, mass atrocities, and then the emphasis is on the prevention and response. Like how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you anticipate? How do you respond? How do you prevent? And then finally, on like rebuilding or how to account for them after it after it happens. So it's really designed to be a synthetic introduction to the field that is both that covers those key pillars, the definition, the causes, the response, the prevention, and the aftermath um, of it. Um, and it's you know designed to be short. You're dealing with chapters that are 10 to 15 pages long and, and written in an accessible style. And so that that I'm, I'm finishing and should, I hope, should be available later this year and it will be published by the museum in Washington, Holocaust Museum in Washington. And if you're interested, I can give you the background, but that's essentially it. And then the bigger, you know, more in-depth research project that will be like the book we've been discussing, Making and Making Nations, is how countries rebuild after this type of violence, how they put themselves back together again. And uh, that's a question that was sort of the after is the legacy of this book I just finished, where I spent a lot of time in Cote d'Ivoire and Mali, Rwanda, thinking about the after period and and different questions that have risen from from that. So that's the agenda. 
Well, they sound like great projects, um, and you are clearly a very busy man. Uh, and so I hope you'll take a little bit of time from your busy schedule when they're done to come back on the show and um, and share your ideas with us again. I, w- I would love to, and I really appreciate um, you know, this space and your thoughtful questions and uh, and your listeners, who um, I am um, you know, grateful for them tuning into this. Okay. Well, I want to say thank you very much for being with us. And um, I hope that you have a great rest of the semester and a great summer. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks again. You've been listening to an interview with Scott Strux about his new book, Making and Unmaking Nations, War, Leadership, and Genocide in Modern Africa. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I talk with Anton Weiss-Vent about two of his books, one of them about the genocide of the Roma, and the other one about racial science. Until then, thanks for the download, and have a great month.